will you remain standing with me out of respect for the Word of God and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8. And we're going to read verses 7 through 13. 1 Corinthians 8. Beginning with verse 7, here is the infallible, inspired, inerrant Word of God. However, not all men have this knowledge. Some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol. Their conscience, being weak, is defiled. But food will not commend us to God. We are neither the worse if we do not eat, neither the better if we do eat. But take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if someone sees you who have knowledge dying in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? For through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble... I'll never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Let's ask God for his help to understand his word. Lord of power and might, the author and giver of all good things, a graft in our hearts the love of your name, nourish us with all goodness and bring forth in us the fruit of good works. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. You may be seated. There's an awful lot of challenges for us if we commit ourselves to the discipline of expository preaching. And we do believe that expository preaching is the right way to preach because the Bible is God's inspired and inerrant word. And that means that every single word that we come across in Scripture is something that God has spoken. And if God has taken the time to speak these words... Uh, we need to take time to understand what he has said. But there's a lot of challenges that confront us in that. Uh, one challenge is that uh, we commit ourselves to this practice, preaching through the Bible, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, we don't get to come to church and hear sometimes the things that we would like to hear about. We don't get to always hear sermons about how to have better families and better marriages and better relationships and uh, sometimes even just better living. So we don't always get to uh, have the kinds of questions that we would like to have answered. Instead, sometimes we come to church uh, having a particular need in our life or a particular question in our mind, and we hear a sermon on meat sacrificed to idols, and we say, what in the world could such a passage have to say to me? After all, we're not in the danger this morning of eating meat sacrificed to idols. Well, what the Apostle is doing here is he's taking on an enormously practical issue that has to do with the Christian life, but in this particular context, it pertains to a problem that is occurring in Corinth, and that is because of the pagan, idolatrous context in which they live, what is happening is that some of the Christian brothers are going down to the local pagan temple, and some of them are eating meat, and because of that, some are stumbling into sin, and some are actually believing that partaking of the meat, they are worshipping idols. And because of that, as Paul says here, their conscience is ruined, they are stumbling, they are wounded, and there is distress and anxiety among some members of the church. And so, they have asked this question to Paul, what do we do about this problem? What do we do about this problem? 
in terms of eating meat sacrifice to idols, and how do we conduct ourselves as a group of Christians. And here's what Paul's response is. And I know that within this passage, uh, it's kind of difficult because of all the information, because of the whole range of implications and levels of insight that is contained in this passage, it's easy to lose the forest for the trees. And so here is the overarching principle that Paul is dealing with this morning. And by the way, it's a principle that is generic enough and broad enough to instruct all of us here this morning in terms of how to live the Christian life. And the basic principle that emerges from this passage is this. Spiritual strength is for the edification of our brothers and not the destruction. Spiritual strength is for the purpose of edifying and building up our neighbors, our brothers in Jesus Christ, and not for their destruction. And so Paul says, this is the principle that I want to get across to you. And by doing that, Paul is answering their question. Can we eat this meat sacrifice to idols? And Paul says, yes and no. (laughs) Depending on how this principle is going to work its way out in the lives of God's people. So that's the broad issue. Now let's zero back in on the context here to help us understand And what Paul is driving at. With your Bibles open, notice the first clause in verse 7. He says, however, not all men have this knowledge. That phrase, this knowledge, helps us connect the thoughts here. This knowledge is definite. In other words, it refers to something. And uh, we know that it refers back to what Paul has been saying in verses 1 through 6. He says in verse 1, Now concerning things offered to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Now Paul takes a couple of verses here to beat down on pride and arrogance. And then from verse 4 and following, he, he talks about the knowledge that we all have as Christians. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. What Paul says here is that uh, we're all monotheists. We all know God is one. Everybody knows that. He said this is Catechism 101. This is Discipleship Training 101. Every Christian knows that God is one. And because God is one, idols don't exist. The other thing that the Apostle Paul uh, brings out here is the fact that God is the Creator in verse 6. That all things are from Him. He says every Christian knows this. As part of their catechism instruction, they know that God is the omnipotent, all-powerful, sovereign creator, and he has made all things that exist out of nothing. And that everything exists in this world is from the hand of God. He has made it. It is not here by chance. It did not come here as a result of your idols constructing this world. This world around us, he says, is created all by God. And if it's created all by God, it goes back to the point that an idol really isn't anything. It's not a God. The other thing that he brings in here is the doctrine of Christology. You see that in verse 6. He tells us uh, that there's also one Lord Jesus Christ. And by that, he's also alluding to the fact that within the Trinity, within this one God, there are three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. But particularly now here, as he focuses on the Son, he said his name is Jesus Christ. That is, he has a human nature. That's what he means when he calls him by Jesus. He had an address. He had brothers and sisters. He grew up in this world. He had a job. He had to get up in the morning. He had to do all the things that you do. He was a human being. But he's also true God. He's Lord. He calls him one Lord. He's this mysterious person within his person is true God and true man forever and ever in a marvelous and mysterious way. Well, I realize that's a lot of knowledge. 
In fact, uh, Paul brings out the biggest theological canons you can think of to answer this question. Can we eat meat off of idols? And he says, let me tell you something. This is what you know, and this is what all Christians know. God is one. Uh, within the Godhead, there are three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus Christ is, is the God-man. Uh, two natures in one person forever. God is creator. God is redeemer. All of this that Paul says, we all know this. Now, that's what he's been talking about. You come back to verse 7, and uh, you run into something that is very perplexing. Because he's just said we all know these things. And now in verse 7 he says, However, not all men have this knowledge. And at that point your head starts spinning. How could that be? You just said we all know this. One option is to say, well, Paul's talking about everybody in the world. And no, that's not what's going on here. He's talking about people in the church. He's saying everybody in the church has this knowledge. So he's talking about Christians. So how do we resolve that? He said, we all know these things, and then he says, not all have this knowledge in them. And in view of the context, the only way to resolve this is to say, what Paul is indicating here is that that we all may know these doctrines, and we do and we should. He says, not all have learned to apply it and internalize it at the same level. In other words, he's saying that there are levels of maturity in the Christian life. That's how we approach this passage, and it's a very important point to the entire thought here in the passage. And now let's just begin to work our way through the ideas. Uh, He says in verse 7, Some, being accustomed to the idol, and to now eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. You see here that Paul also speaks of the weak in verse 9, that There's a stumbling block in their way. He calls them the weak. The first thing that I want us to know here this morning from this passage is that within the scope and context of the church, there are Christians who fall into different spiritual categories of maturity. There are some who are weak, and there are some who are strong, and there are some in the middle. There are levels of maturity in the Christian life. And it doesn't mean that one brother isn't really trusting in God for his salvation. It doesn't mean that one is really not saved. It doesn't even mean that one doesn't have as much knowledge as the other. It doesn't mean that one is not fully justified or regenerated or made a new creation. That's not true. Everybody has those things. What he's saying is that there are some people who haven't quite yet matured in their Christian life to grasp hold of these great principles and know how to live them out within their life. And see what happens here when people who are weak in their faith don't know how fully to apply it and to live it out and then they go out into the world and they encounter uh, certain problems, uh, they are in great danger of stumbling and having great spiritual problems. And one of the problems here that Paul isolates is uh, these weak brothers who, he says... We're accustomed to the idol until now. See, there were some weak Christians in Corinth who grew up in paganism and were idolaters. And what Paul has in view here is religious idolatry. And there's religious idolatry and there's secular idolatry. We all know what religious idolatry is. It's when you make an object and you venerate it with worship and offerings and sacrifices. The world was full of that at the time of the apostles. 
secular idolatry is when we construct mental images of God and they are not based on any revelation. They're the idols of our own making, such as material possessions and false philosophies and views of life and reality. But the kind of idolatry Paul deals here with is a very primitive and crude form of idolatry where people uh, worship this icon which was a representative of a particular God. And it's hard for us to really grasp uh, how important idolatry was in the ancient world. I think I've said this before, that there were gods for everything. Uh, We just can't understand that in our secular world today. Uh, God is mostly out of the thoughts of most people. In the ancient world, God was always in the thoughts of everyone. They were always thinking about the gods and how to live for the gods and how to figure out which god they need to sacrifice to at the right time and in the right way and in the right procedure. And to fail to do that was a mark of irreverence. They were completely under the control of these false gods. And the interesting thing is, when the apostles came into that context to begin to preach the gospel, the very first thing they called these pagans away from was idolatry. If you go back and you read the sermons in the book of Acts, what you will find Paul repeatedly doing as he speaks to unbelievers who were pagans, he calls them to break free of their idolatry. He says, stop worshipping your false gods. There's only one God that is the true God, who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because there is only one God, there is only one way of salvation, and that's in the Son, Jesus Christ. And you must break free of all those idols. You must repent of worshipping those idols. And you must change your life and realize that life is not about figuring out how to manipulate all the various deities that you think of. Life is about worshipping the one God who has created everything and provided salvation through the one Savior, Jesus Christ. And the fact is, as you read through the book of Acts and other of the New Testament letters, you find this great idea that through the grace of God, people broke free of idolatry. Paul will even say that. You turned from idols to living in the true God. The problem with that is, though they did experience that breaking away, they were also tempted because of their former way of life, sometimes, to go back to that old way of thinking. That's what was going on here. When they went to the temple, and by the way, there were no uh, restaurants and McDonald's and claim jumpers in the ancient world. So if you wanted a steak, where you went was the, the temple. And so they would go there with their families and extended families and friends to, to enjoy fellowship, which was a very common thing to do at that time. And when they began to eat that meat that was offered to the idols, here's what Paul says, they being weak in conscience, now were defiled. They were defiled. That means when they ate that meat, all of a sudden they began to feel like that uh, old God that they venerated was actually a God who existed. And they began to feel like they were now worshippers of that God. And they began to feel guilt. And they began to feel shame. And they began to feel anxious. Because now, uh, though they were, uh, they were Christians and they were followers of Jesus Christ, they began to feel like their loyalties were divided. You know, we have the same problem today. You don't have to go worship 
uh, an idol and eat meat sacrificed to idols to go back to your old sinful ways and to feel like you have a guilty conscience. If you had a guilty conscience last week about anything or this morning when you came in here to worship, you know exactly what Paul is speaking about when he says their conscience was defiled. They felt like they had failed to live like God wanted them to. And it wounded them spiritually. Now Paul says it's partly their fault, but now he introduces us to a new category within the church. And here he calls them the strong. Verse 9 he says, uh, Take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. He says in verse 10, if any one of you has knowledge and the weak person sees you dying in the idol's temple, uh, he'll be built up to go do what is wrong. Verse 11, he talks about through their knowledge, ruining those uh, for whom Christ died. In verse 12, you see him referencing this distinction again, uh, causing the weaker brother to go off and sin and to wound his conscience you find here is that Paul is setting up a category saying there is the weak and now there are the strong and the strong people looked at life and they said well it's all from God which was true it was all from God so it was okay to partake in these activities they knew that there was no such thing as this whole array of false gods they knew there was only one God and so that they knew that when they went to a barbecue at the temple and they ate the steak they just treated it as dinner But there was this other group of people within the church who didn't look at it that way. But here, these strong people sensed that they had the liberty to do that thing and that they weren't sinning at all. But he says, your actions now, if you do that under certain circumstances with this weak brothers watching you, have a negative impact on others. Verse 10. He presents a very realistic scenario here. If someone sees you who have knowledge, that's the strong person now who knows that idols are nothing, it's no big deal to eat steak at the temple, and they see you dining, he says, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols? See, he's talking about the impact that our actions have on fellow believers, and he says, you who are strong, you need to be aware of this fact, of this principle of reality, that when you engage in certain actions, because your conscience doesn't bother you at all, there may be another believer who's standing ten foot away and watching what you're doing, and is pained in their conscience, because on the one hand they're saying, I know there's no such thing as idols, I know it's okay to eat meat, but deep down in their heart of hearts they think that if I go do that, I'm going to sin against my conscience, and I'm going to engage in idolatry, worship and then I'm going to displease God and what the picture is here that person who's standing over there watching the strong brother eat and enjoy the steak and the hamburger and the french fries they are all of a sudden caught up in this quandary about what to do and by seeing you eat he says eventually they sin against their conscience by going forward and eating what they feel like they shouldn't be doing The result of it is this. If you see it in verse 11 and 12, Paul uses very uh, vivid terms to describe the spiritual impact of these actions. He says, through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. The word there in the original is literally destroyed. And notice how he clarifies this. 
That weak person is ruined, and this is what he says about him. The brother for whose sake Christ died. You see, he gives us an insight into the significance and the importance of that weak Christian. He calls him a brother to reinforce the tie that binds these Christians together. And he says, the glue that holds all of us together is not the force and the power of our personalities or our ability to understand how to relate to each other. The glue that holds all of us together is the fact that Jesus died for our sins. What Paul was saying is that that weak brother is so important in the eyes of Jesus Christ that he gave his life for him. It's it's really powerfully accented in the original here. He died. That's what Paul's saying. He died for this weak person. Now he says to the strong, "Are, are you going to go tear them down by how you act? Are you going to lead them into activities that are contrary to their conscience? Are are you going to lead them into a point where they sin and they become full of anxiety and riddled with doubt and fears and all kinds of problems because you are so arrogant with the use of your knowledge that you can't restrain your activity and you can't love your brother? You can't moderate your actions? He says, how dare you? We'll come back to that. It's a very sobering admonition that all of us have obligations and responsibility to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And there's just certain things that some of us need to be aware of that we cannot do because we may just cause our neighbor to stumble. And Paul says to be ruined. And then verse 12 he says to be wounded. A very powerful word. He says by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience. Again, this is a very vivid word in the original. It has the idea of beating somebody up with blows. And wounding here is a pretty powerful idea. To give somebody a bloody nose and to puncture uh, the skin and to, to break bones and to get really roughed up. He's saying, this is the spiritual impact of them going off and doing stuff that was contrary to their conscience. Now, he says that's the kind of activity that we can't engage in. In fact, he says, if food causes my brother to stumble, I'll never eat meat again, so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. That tells us something pretty important about the impact of, the spiritual impact of our actions. And Paul says we ought to have such great love and care for other Christians that we would so guard and moderate our ways that we would avoid eating food. Now, I know that's hyperbole. It's it's overstating uh, the case for dramatic effect. But what he is saying here, in order to get our attention, that this is what a high regard we ought to have for our brothers and sisters, that we would give up absolutely anything in our life if it meant building them up and strengthening them and preventing them from spiritual harm. That's an enormous responsibility that every single person who is sitting here this morning that claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ has. To feel the force of this admonition to say, I should love my neighbor in Christ so much that I would be willing to give up anything in my life in order to be a blessing to them. 
Well, those are words for all of us to hear. It's kind of funny that we would hear those in a passage about meat sacrifice to idols. It's kind of funny that we would, we would hear that when we're reading a passage like this and we might think it has probably pretty much nothing to do with us today so we can think about watching uh, Sunday afternoon football. There's a lot here. There's several applications that I want to develop off of this passage for us this morning to see the relevance of it. First of all, one is a doctrinal issue. One is a doctrinal issue, and it has to be talked about because if you have a study Bible, you might have down in the notes uh, a little bit of a discussion about how this passage is one key passage in the debate over a couple of Calvinistic distinctive doctrines, one of them being the perseverance of the saints and the other being limited atonement. Now, don't check out on me. Very important here. Because uh, what is being argued by those who reject Calvinism, and in my view, the biblical understanding of salvation, uh, what they are saying here is that this weak brother is ruined, stumbles, and is wounded. And they're arguing, see, this verse is telling us, this text is telling us, that it's possible for a believer to walk away from Jesus Christ and to experience spiritual death after coming to faith. And the other thing that they will say, because here Paul says that Christ died for that person, and if they could walk away from Christ and lose their salvation, that tells us something else. That tells us, they will argue, that Jesus died for those who weren't His own people and who weren't elect. Now, you're probably all frantically searching through your study notes now to see whether the debate is in your Bible. It probably is in some of yours. Is that what Paul is saying? Is he saying to you this morning that if you're a weaker brother, you have to sit around on pins and needles and chewing your nails, uh, hoping against hope that you don't fall away from Christ? That's what you should be asking. If I am a weaker brother here this morning, do I have to sit around being concerned that Jesus is going to let me go? That Jesus is going to allow my sins to so overwhelm me and then eventually separate me from His love so that I lose my salvation That would be an enormous concern for us. But I want you to know here this morning, people of God, whether you're weak and you're strong, Paul is not saying that you can lose your salvation by sinning under the point of spiritual death. He says there are grave consequences for your sins. Yes. He says you stumble. He says you are ruined. He says, and explain that even further in verse 12, you are wounded. But let me tell you this, I've never heard anybody describe a dead person as wounded. Have you? No. Paul is not saying here that the weak brother died spiritually, fell away from Christ, and lost his salvation. He's just saying that there are grave consequences for sin and that we all better be very aware of that so that we guard our actions and that we moderate what we do. Because we don't want to experience the pain of a defiled conscience. Very important for you to get this morning. This does not teach that God lets you go. He doesn't. Jesus said in John 10 that we are so in His hand and then in the hand of His Father that no one can pluck us out. You are entitled this morning, even if you've fallen into sin this morning, If you have trusted in the blood of Christ for salvation, your sin cannot pluck you out of the hands of Christ. 
You are entitled this morning to go to the cross and to say, yes, I trust in that sacrifice for my sin and I trust that God is my Father. I trust that I am truly saved. I trust that God hasn't kicked me out of His family. And I trust that I have assurance of my salvation. Now, you need to leave your sins. That's true. You need to do that. But you're entitled to assurance. God never allows one of His children to lose their salvation. He cannot do it. He cannot change. He cannot go back on His promises. And if that is true, then it doesn't defeat limited atonement either. Because that person is still a brother. And it only confirms the basic idea behind limited atonement, which is Jesus dies for His people. So there's a doctrinal one, and now we would say here is what we might think is more practical. Let's get into some of the practical applications of this passage here. And the first uh, practical thing is uh, we learn here that Paul really gives us some insight into basic principles of discipleship. And the first principle of discipleship is that we need to be aware of the fact that there is progression in the Christian faith. There are such a thing, there is such a category as those who are weak and those who are developing and then those who are strong. We need to be aware of that. We need to understand ourselves and we need to understand those around us so that we know how that this principle works its way up in practical matters and issues. We need to be aware of that. And by the way, when Paul brings in this whole distinction of the weak and the strong and saying that the weak here stumbles and may get offended... I want us to be clear that he's not talking about Pharisees. He's not talking about Pharisees who uh, put their hand over their mouth and blush and act like they're all offended and and bothered by you because you're exercising your Christian liberty. That's self-righteousness. That's being judgmental. He's not talking about that. He is talking about the person who is weak and who sees somebody engaging in activity that is lawful under ordinary circumstances. Yet he just can't do it himself because he may abuse that to the point that he is spiritually damaged. Maybe an example that all of us would get, let's say somebody who had a great struggle with abuse of alcohol in their past. And they become a believer and they realize that they just cannot do that anymore. They stay away from it. We would say that they have a weak conscience. And we would say that if you go and crack a can open in front of them, and keep pushing it on them. Uh, that person is weak. And they need you to not do that. They need you to be a good brother. And to refrain. Because they can't stop at one or two. They can only do ten. And that's just for a warm up. They can't see this. They need time to grow spiritually. They need to grow up in Christ. They need to grow in sanctification. And so here's what I'm saying to you. And this is very important to reform people because we do have a chip on our shoulder about this. We are very big about talking about adiaphora and liberty and things indifferent because the Bible teaches this. Because God has created this world. It is fundamentally and basically good. And God has given us enormous uh, opportunity to enjoy great gifts from Him. And we need to rejoice in that. There are many things that we can do as Christians that are enjoyable. and As we do them, we we learn to thank God for uh, the goodness of His creation. But we need to also remember that there are other believers that can't handle us doing certain things around them. 
You just, you, we just have to accept that. The way we talk about things, the way, uh, the kinds of activities that we engage in. We need to be sensitive to the people who are around, who are listening and who are watching because they may not have the same level of resistance and strength and appreciation as you do. And I know often Reformed people look at that idea and they say how ridiculous it is and they're so happy that they have this freedom because perhaps before they weren't taught this way. It's an unloving use of freedom. That's what Paul says. And we have to realize that people are at different points in their spirituality and their development. And that means that we have to be careful to get to know God's people so that we know how to act in a way that's proper. So there's some basic principles of discipleship there. Second of all, what this passage uh, really boldly declares also is that you need to have a settled conscience. You need to have a settled conscience. Uh, It's clear here... The way Paul deals with both categories, he commends them for having conscience. He looks at the strong and he says, uh, it's okay that you have knowledge. He looks at the strong and says, it's okay that you feel like you're just going to a barbecue and you're not engaging in false worship. It's okay that you understand that you have this liberty. He doesn't rebuke them for that at all. He says, your conscience is guiding you correctly. To the weak, he says, uh, he talks about them sinning against conscience. And, and he doesn't rebuke them because they're weak in conscience. He doesn't belittle them. He doesn't uh, sort of embarrass them or make them feel uncomfortable because they're not quite as strong and able to go have barbecue at the temple. He doesn't say that at all. He says, you have a conscience about that? That's good and that's fine and you need that. And what tells me here is that believers need to have a settled conscience. You need to make decisions about what you understand in terms of the liberty that you have in Christ and how to use that. Paul speaks about the same idea in Romans chapter 14. And there's the debates going on within the church at Rome. Some feel like uh, they have to observe holy days and eat kosher diets. And others said, no, we can, uh, we can, we can treat every day alike. But you know what Paul's uh, solution to that was? Is he said, you better get an opinion. Get an opinion. Be clear in your mind. Have a fixed opinion because your conscience is what guides you. And if you don't have a settled conscience, you are prey for the devil to attack you and to turn your life upside down spiritually. This is how he says it at the end of that passage. He says in Romans chapter 14 verse 23, he says, whatever is not of faith is of sin. In other words, he says, if you are not settled in your mind about the things that you're doing, that they are biblical and they are lawful, even if it's a matter of something indifferent, he says, you are sinning. It's spiritually dangerous to go around without clear ideas about what is right and wrong, and those ideas must guide you. If you don't have that, you are in a dangerous spiritual place. The application of this passage is to be settled. Be clear in your mind. Whether you're going to eat or not eat, know why. Remember, this brings us back into the whole issue that Christianity is a reflective faith. It's an intellectual faith. It's a spiritual thing. We have to uh, combine 
these things together in our mind. We must work. We must use our minds to think about what God wants us to do and internalize truth and dwell on truth and be persuaded of truth. And you may even pray over this. You may need to pray that God would help you think and would illuminate your mind and He would give you settled and strong convictions about things and then have the power and the desire to live according to them. You better have a settled conscience this morning. If you don't, Paul says you are in danger of being defiled in conscience, being ruined, and being wounded. Those are not good things. Those are not good things. They're very dangerous to us spiritually. Finally, by way of application here this morning, we need to all take responsibility for the fact that our behavior and our actions have tremendous spiritual impact on other believers. And I know sometimes that we feel like we don't have to own up to that responsibility. Because we may just say, hey, they should grow up on their own. I'm going to be me. But that's not the sense of this passage at all. What the Apostle is laboring to get across to Christians is that the way we act can have tremendous impact on our brothers in Christ. He talks about it negatively here, about how these actions lead people to go against their conscience. And the obvious implication here is this, that we need to think about how to positively build up others. We need to think about how to positively build up those who are around us. And we all need to accept that as our obligation. We can't have a self-centered Christianity this morning. It's just about me. My prayer closet, my quiet times, my Bible reading, my activities, as if all of Christianity was about us being free agents and all we have to think about is ourselves. No, what Paul says is you must think about how you are called to build up other Christians by how you live. Now, I realize that that is a huge burden for every person here. If you really think about it, you are called not just to refrain from tripping others up, but you are actually called to figure out how you can act so that you help every person that you see in this room this morning. That's a big responsibility. That's what Paul says uh, we are called to do. We're called... Uh, to use our strength to edify others. How do we do that? We sit down and we really think about this. Jesus died for me. And Jesus died for them. And that is the glue that holds us together. And if Christ has such a regard, not just for me, but for a person sitting next to me, that He went to the cross and He took the curse of God against uh, their sins upon Himself, then, then I need, I need to, I must, I must care. I must care about the person sitting next to me. And out of gratitude for my salvation in Jesus Christ, we need to accept this responsibility and use strength, spiritual strength, to build up others in Christ. Let's pray.